This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. to open the voice gate for march 8th 2020 we are members of the voices of wrestling podcast network you could find all the shows on the podcast platform of your choice or a dedicated open the voice gate feed it's your old pal iron mike spears and i'm joined as always with case low case how's it going oh mike you know it's uh it's going i i don't even remember the last time we recorded a show. I kind of alluded to this in an article I recently wrote for voiceofwrestling.com about AAW, Chicago's premier independent promotion, where I was saying that my, my my wrestling appetite has kind of dwindled a little bit, but I'm also just busier than I've ever been due to my current academic and work schedule. Um, so I don't know the last time we recorded. I know we've got a lot to discuss today, and I'm excited to discuss it. But uh, I'm currently kind of running around like a headless chicken going from one event to the next. Uh, and I've got about another two months of that. And then things will settle down once again. And we'll be back on a semi-regular basis at that point, at least, you know, regular basis for Open the Voice Gate. But I'm happy to be here uh, and I'm happy to have some time on this lovely Sunday afternoon to sit and talk with you about Dragon Gate and the Champion Gate in Osaka shows. Yeah, I just looked at my files to see when you brought that up the last one i have is from the end of january so it's been about five weeks but it does feel like it's been a okay that's it feels like it's been a little longer though to be honest it, it does that was i was thinking i was like god have we done one in 2020 and i guess we have and i'm glad because i like at the very at the very minimum doing at least one of these a month uh but it didn't pan out in february but luckily uh we had the first big shows of the year in you know the last day of February and then the first day of March. And uh, yeah, they were, they were certainly something. Yeah. That, that that's a good way to put it. It's been a peculiar last like three weeks in Dragon Gate and not to mention the entirety of the Japanese wrestling scene because of COVID-19 and the Corona outbreak. Uh, we, we've both been busy, so we weren't really able to talk about the February Corkins with the uh, KZ versus Doi title match. I think like we did a preview for that, and that was the last thing we talked about. And other than remembering how much that match ruled, I don't remember a whole lot about it at this point. And so unless you had something that you, you had a memory of it that you wanted to talk about before we get into these Champion Gate shows from... So, I mean, like that that's almost like a full month ago. I don't know how much you would remember from that match. No, the the only thing that I feel is worth mentioning, and at February Corkin show, 
man, that that feels like it was forever ago, which I, I think it's just because of the lack of progression that we had because they ran, I think, another two televised shows after that, and then it was in the Champion Gate, and then we never really got the payoff at the March Corkin because it was canceled due to the corona outbreak, which uh, I am not someone that typically lives in fear of illness. I have a very strong immune system and just generally not something that bothers me. But even I'm like, oh, man, there's been six confirmed cases of corona in Cook County, Chicago, Illinois. Like, I should really be sure to wash my hands. It's been uh, – it's the one thing that has like started to make me a little bit nervous, but I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, but the February quirk in it was a, a breezy show to watch. Uh, Masato Yoshino and Shuji Kondo versus A10 BB Hulk and Yamato and Kai is worth a watch if you haven't seen that. And then the main event, which unfortunately we did not get to do any audio on it. I have a written review up on voicesofwrestling.com where I compare KZ to Reggie Jackson, Mr. October, because KZ has become seemingly Mr. February within the context of Dragon Gate because this is the third year in a row he had a bona fide top 10 match of the year contender. This match with Naruki Doi is, I, I think it's on another level. I, this is something that unless we are blessed with a great King of Gate and a great G1 climax, and if All Elite really starts churning out match of the year, like Young Bucks versus Omega and Page type matches on a consistent basis, this is something that will finish in my top 10. I never really thought about going five stars with it, but for me, it was a no doubt four and three quarter stars. And just, it was two wrestlers at the top of their game. And I think that is something that when people watch Dragon Gate and they parachute in, I hope they come away with the same feeling that I get of, yes, like a big New Japan main event, an Okada versus Naito, Goto versus Ishii, whoever else there's just a certain level of pageantry and excellence in new japan that is undeniable and it's hard to beat because for even though drangate is the second biggest company in japan there is a large gap between them and new japan and i accept that and you know i i, I don't have any issues with that because new japan is just unstoppable they're an unstoppable force this de decade but when i watch a match like doi versus casey it is so clear to me that these are two professional wrestlers at the very top of their game and they are so good at what they do and so elite they are just on another level that you don't see uh, i don't i, I don't want to say you don't see it in companies like pro wrestling noah or all japan or big japan or ddt but like i feel like there's just a gap between these big dragon gate matches and really every other company in japan with the exception of New Japan. And yeah, you'll have a Takashi Segura or a Kento Miyahara match that hits really high levels and is, you know, four and three quarters, four and a half, whatever. But when I watch a match like Doi and Casey, I think these are the best wrestlers in the world. And when they go out there and they have an output like that, it is a beautiful thing to see. So if you haven't seen Doi versus Casey, I highly recommend it. It will be a top 10 match for me this year. Yeah. it. I We're now like three months in, like a, not really three months in, we're two months and a weekend to 2020. And I have like three matches that I know will make my top 10 list. And this is the one that's fighting with Bucks versus Hangman and Omega for number one. But it, the thing that gets me, and I think the thing that when we talk about Champion Gate Night 2, we'll get a chance to get into this as, as well, is Naruki Doi in 2020 versus Naruki Doi in 2010 is something special. And this match, I actually was closer to pulling the trigger on five. On, on giving it five stars than I did any of the other previous uh, Q 
KZ title matches. It just clicked with me in a certain way, and it was something really special, and it was something that just with, like, the passage of time, like, this match still really sticks out in my head, and for me, who I don't do a typical notebook, as most people do, or spreadsheet, I basically keep a very short list of, like, okay, these are the matches that I'm going to be thinking about for the remainder of the year, and this was the first one that made the list, and it's this match, the uh, AEW tag match, and then the uh, stardom uh, Mayu Iwatani versus Takumi Aroha match that are, like, my three matches that so far, out of the first 50 days of 2020, have stuck out so much for me. It's just something that, it's been real interesting, this Naruki Doi Dreamgate reign, and it's something that I think that, I'm enjoying a lot more than I thought I would at the end of 2019 with Final Gate. Like, it's just something special, I feel like. Do you want to start with night two and go into that? Because I watched the Susumu Yokozuka match last night. I, you know, it was a a week after the fact, but I finally had time to sit down and watch it. And I was blown away by how good that match was. I don't know if you want to start with night two and then work our way backwards or what you want to do here, but I have more thoughts on Naruki Doi if you want to hear them. Yeah, let's just go straight into night two, just keeping up continuity here. So this was the second night. It had better attendance. Attendance for both these shows were massively down because of Corona and COVID-19. It's kind of like, hey, you ran these shows. Good for you. We're not going to. I can't really dock their attendance for this. But the main event of this show and introducing the new version four of the Open the Dreamgate title belt was Nuruki Adoi making his second defense of the Open the Dreamgate championship beating Susumi Yokosuka in just under 23 minutes with the new quick hold. And how much... Uh, I have my review up on Voices of Wrestling, so people can see have probably seen my initial thoughts, but I'm interested in your thoughts in this match. Yeah, this was uh, a delightful surprise because... And I, th- I think it has finally uh, vanished from my mind, but these doi title challenges, I've been a little nervous going into simply because... And I wasn't watching actively at the time, but watching in hindsight, the 2009 Doi Reign, it was the, the matches were not enjoyable for me, with the exception of the match that he lost to uh, Yamato in Sumo Hall in 2010. It was a reign that I did not enjoy, and one of the matches that has always stuck out in my mind from Naruki Doi's first Dreamgate title reign was a match against Asuma Yokozuka. It happened on October 25th, 2009. I saw this match because it was a bonus match on a Dragon Gate USA DVD that Lenny Leonard did English commentary over. 32 minutes, 52 seconds, Doi defeated Susumu. And this match felt, if not like 32 minutes and 52 seconds, maybe double that. It was just an exhaustingly long match that never really progressed. There was such a long opening, like just boring grappling segment. It felt like a stereotype of those bad Dreamgate matches that have unfortunately plagued the company for so many years now. But when I watched him in 2020, I'm looking at Doi and it's like watching a different wrestler. And and I've always loved Doi. I love his tag team work, whether it be with Yamato, Yoshino, whoever else he's teaming with. I think he's one of the greatest singular tag team wrestlers of all time. But his singles work has always left a little bit to be desired. It's like he's never totally comfortable with a spotlight firmly on him. He's never totally comfortable as a singles wrestler. Yet when he wrestled this match, the KZ match, the match that he won the title in, it's like watching a different human being. I can't believe that 20 years into his career, basically, Naruki Doi has finally figured out 
exactly what he needs to do as a singles wrestler. This is a match that I gave four and a half half stars too. I flirted with four and three quarters, but I decided it's a firm four and a half. It is the second best Dragon Gate match I have seen this year. Only second to Doi versus KZA. I thought it was a brilliant affair, and I am so glad that I made the time to watch it because it's something that everybody should carve out, you know, 25 minutes or however long it was and sit down and watch this match because like I said about Doi versus KZ, it remains true here. These are two professional wrestlers at the top of their game. Yeah, and I think the the thing that really struck me about this match and kind of is the story of the last almost four years of Susumu Yokosuka's career dating back to his title challenge against uh, Misaki Mochizuki in 2017 was just how much of a command of all sides of the professional wrestling match Susumu has. And this match was kind of a testimony to that because you had, you had Naruki Doi, and this is something that I watched both these shows with the English commentary and night two, you could hear them a lot better than night one, but night two, Jay brought up a really good point of, Hey, this is something that is going to be tough for Susumu because he's had two all Japan junior title defenses since this match was signed. Whereas Naruki Doi could rest up and scout him. And that's kind of turned into the whole entire story of the match where Naruki Doi, usually whenever they do like these mat work starts, I'm usually one of the first people to complain about them, but this time it really worked on a solid basis because he was breaking down Susumu's arm and he pretty much had a control. Like this is a match that I would say that Naruki Doi had about 70-30 of him being on offense in this match and it got to a point where like Susumu was trying to get the adrenaline going so he could hit Jumbo no Kachi's they were connecting, but not with the power he wanted, so he started to stack and go for stuff like Yokosuka cutters and his bigger moves, but then Naruki Doi kept on trying to go back to the muscular bombs, since that's what has been his bread butter this round, but he realized, I can't get this guy up here. He's starting to come back around. I've got to finish this as soon as possible, and he's found a new flash pin out of a jumble no Kachi, and I thought that was just a very smartly done match i also went four and a half on this and it just was a very solid professional wrestling title match like this is these are the dream gate matches that i wish were happening before pax how right during that giant lull of the yamato title defenses and then the uh, yoshino title defenses like these are the kind of title matches that i want out of the dream gate title and it still blows my mind that this is nuruki doi doing this after his very, his disastrous first title run. Well, it blows my mind that Doi is doing it, and it blows my mind that Susumu is still working at the level he is. And he's the current All Japan Junior Heavyweight Champion. Part of my eventual wrestling catch-up will be watching the Susumu All Japan stuff, because admittedly, I have not seen any of it. Uh, but it's something I am very excited to dive into when I have the chance. But Mike, and I'm going to reference this project, I think, a few different times throughout this podcast because these shows in particular had me re-examining my greatest wrestler ever list that I've mentioned on the show uh, probably every episode. But in, in 2016, the Forum Pro Wrestling Only did a list of the 100 greatest wrestlers of all time. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know pro wrestling only they are not exactly fans of the dragon system and so i don't think it was an accurate accurate representation of dragon gate guys but i felt like my list uh was a was what i think it, it was what it should have been and dragon gate guys were you know thoroughly placed throughout the list some very, very highly some towards the bottom of the list so sumi yokozuka 
was ranked 31. He was the 31st greatest wrestler, in my opinion, in 2016. And we've now had almost four years since the voting period ended to watch and consume more of his work. And luckily, we've not only seen him progress since 2016, but because of the Dragon Gate Network, we also have greater archives and resources of Susumu Yokozuka work. So, Mike, I want to throw three random names at you. And if you have any opinion on the idea of Susumu being a better wrestler historically than this guy, let me know. And if you don't have a strong opinion, just say Pat. I'll move on to the next name. But Susumu Yokozuka versus Ricky Steamboat. Do you have any strong opinions there? Uh, you just like doing these segments because you know I'll get in trouble for these. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Ricky Steamboat. Oh, gosh, that is an interesting comp. Uh, personally, and this is just my own personal taste, I like Susumu more, but that's also because I like the uh, Dragon System style a lot more than 80s uh, Jim Crockett slash WCW, though. That is, if I was going to put, like, orders of magnitude or standard deviation, these two would be very, very close. I think Susumu's a better tag worker later on in his career than Ricky Steamboat was. Like, as soon as the Youngblood tag team seemed to wrap up, it, Ricky Steamboat didn't really do as much consistent tag work. But Susumu, you have, like, 20 years of him starting off with Konda, then going on to people like uh, uh, like Kness and then Kalkatora and just various other teams. So I feel like that those like the tag work is what would edge uh susumi Yokosuka over ricky steamboat in my mind so in 2016 i had ricky steamboat at 28 and i had yokosuka at 31 i agree with your point especially in terms of taste like these are two very hard wrestlers to rank against one another i am typically not a giant fan of 80s crockett or especially 80s wwf but steamboat is one of the few guys from that era that I watch and consume Steamboat matches, and I, I love them. I, I think he is an excellent worker. But if I had to do it again today, I'm probably putting Susumu ahead of him. Now, what about a guy who's a little bit more contemporary, El Generico? Does El Generico have a better historical case versus Susumu Yokosuka? God. <laughs> you, you aren't going easy on me <laughs> with these this time. No, because... We're talking about now the 30 greatest wrestlers in the history of professional wrestling. That is the level that, quite honestly, I think, I mean, top 50 if you're not a fan of the style. But I really think Susumu needs to be discussed in this light. He needs to be discussed in this elite pantheon, this elite pyramid of professional wrestlers. And I think most people that have a clue and that are tuned into modern wrestling and even the slightest would put El Generico in this category as well yeah i would i i would say that whereas susumu has had this incredibly strong period of about three to four years since that title match i talked about with uh with, with masaki mochizuki uh we've probably already seen the peak of el generico slash Sami Zayn. i think that he is someone that at least while in WWE, he's not going to get any sort of run. And I feel like the WWE system, for a multitude of reasons, hampers talent. So I think now I would firmly put Susumu Yokosuka in front of El Generico just because of Susumu Yokosuka doesn't have weak years. But pretty much since uh, 2018, 2019, 2020, Sami Zayn has been, a non, has been such a, a non-entity that I would dock him 
I would have to start docking him, and it would continue for each year that he remains in the WWE system at this kind of schedule. I think that's fair. Final name I'm going to give you. It's one that I think there is an old guard that if they heard this argument, their head would blow off. They wouldn't be able to comprehend it because it might sound ridiculous on paper, but I only think it sounds ridiculous because we are so ingrained in this line of thinking that wrestlers from this company and this era are all-time elite wrestlers and that the idea of you know what is still kind of considered to be a young upstart promotion in Dragon Gate slash Torimon they can't even compare historically. But what about someone like Jumbo Saruta? Where does he rank against Susumu Yokozuka? Oh, man. Jumbo was my guy for that period of All Japan. You know, pretty much up until his health got in that way and they shifted completely over to the four pillars. He just had, like, the style of that I really enjoyed out of it. I, But his career, I mean, really you're talking about, what, 15 years or thereabout of him at his peak, would you say? So that's that's the tricky thing is there are people that will swear by Jumbo's work in the 70s and his stuff with Jack Briscoe and Billy Robinson and Harley Race to an extent. For me, Jumbo becomes interesting at the turn of the decade into the... Yes, I think 1980s Jumbo is far more engaging than any of the 70s stuff. Now, part of that is just the house style, and I don't love most 70s All Japan that I've seen, but I also think when you look at the two, it's very easy to tell, at least in my opinion, that 80s Jumbo into early 90s Jumbo is just a completely different, far more engaging, far more interesting wrestler than he was in the 70s. So you could say, you know, 1977 if you wanted to. I become interested in Jumbo more so in 1980, I think, with the finals of the Real World Tag League that year when it's Baba and Jumbo versus Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk and then... I mean, Jumbo's good through 91. Maybe there's some stuff in 92 that uh, – yeah, you got the uh, the six-man tag on May 22nd, 1992. It's Jumbo, Tawei, and Fuchi versus Kobashi, Kobashi, Masao, and Kawada. That's probably his last great match. So you're looking at, you know, 12 to 15 years, and it likely would have continued, but unfortunately we don't know what Jumbo would have looked like after that because – you know, his, his career, unfortunately, came to a halt. Susumu, we're now looking at 20 years of matches that are peaking around the same heights as Jumbo. We're looking at four and a half, four and three quarters, even five-star matches. They both have multiples of them in my mind. So it's tough to say, but where, where do you stand on Susumu versus Jumbo? I think, and this is probably where we're going to diverge a little bit, I think I take those 14 years of Jumbo over Susumu just because when you had like that period of all Japan when it was kicking on all gears and even like I love that six man tag the one with with Fuji versus the Misawa gun team I thought that 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 was like at the time was like heralding a new era and a lot of different things but the thing about Susumu and when we talk about 22 years of Susumu's career or thereabouts is there are times where Susumu is not a focus and he still works well, but instead of getting like the constant four and a half, four and three quarters, four and a quarter star matches that we've seen out of him the last four years, like he pretty much, well, when he joined the Jimmies, he wasn't doing a whole lot. He was doing a tag team work with uh, 
Kakatora, which was one of my favorite tag teams of this generation. But then he kind of was disappeared a little bit until the surprise win. And then before that, I mean, he was a member of like the Junction Three and Blood Warriors feud, but he was not exactly a frontline guy in that feud, if that makes sense. So like that's where, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't a frontline guy, but he he did a ton of great work that year mm-hmm. uh, in DG USA, and then in particular Drangate UK. Which if that footage ever surfaces online, I mean that would be just such a blessing because the the Shingo versus Susumu trilogy is, I mean, they're like lost tapes at this point. I mean, it's some of the most excellent professional wrestling I've seen, and yet no one has seen it. And it's stuff I've talked about on this show since its inception is, oh my God, this Gate UK stuff, you guys need to see it. But it's hard to find. I don't even have access to it anymore. But I think, I think I'm with you. I think the next historical barrier that Susumu can topple is Jumbo Saruta. And I, I don't know when, I don't know how, I don't know if that will happen, but I look at the career of Susumu Yokosuka. I think he's better than Ricky Steamboat. I think he's better than El Generico. And it's easy to forget because we're living in the doldrums of the Sami Zayn days that El Generico is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And if you throw on any independent show that he's on from 2007 onwards, you will see that. It's not a mystery. I don't think that's that hot of a take, but I think Susumu's better. But Jumbo Saruta, I think, is his next block in terms of legacy and greatness because now we're talking about Susumu if we're talking about comparing him to Jumbo a top 25 guy of all time and I really really think that's fair and I think if you are outraged by that you're either not watching or you are stuck in the mud and it's and you don't have to agree with that but I don't think it's a ridiculous argument to make no, no, it's not, and I think it's one of those things that, for me, I feel like the toughest decision wasn't Jumbo, it was El Generico, just because, like, up until 2016, he was still in his peak, but then you had his his complete fragility and then the total drop-off of being on the WWE main roster that killed him. And I think the thing about Jumbo also, when you, like, you're talking about it, is, like, that's a time period that I feel like everyone was watching All Japan, or has watched that time period, whereas some of the stuff like DG UK, DG USA, which people frankly have forgotten about, or like some of the doldrum times in DG, people don't necessarily like look at that, go back and look at the footage there. But I mean, when you look at like a 22 year career, Susumu Yokosuka, at least in ring, definitely is someone that I would rank among the truly elite tier in pro wrestling. I completely agree, and I think his title match versus Naruki Doi was an elite-tier match. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, do you have any other thoughts about this? Uh, I didn't get a chance to really ask you. What do you think about the new Dreamgate belt? It's fine. I don't I don't get too wrapped up in new logos or new belts because I, I will become used to them eventually. I loved the now old Dreamgate design, the one that— at least in my mind, I still picture when I think of the Dream Gate. I love that belt. I loved the keys on it. I thought the whole thing was brilliant, and it was just a stunning professional wrestling belt, which is not something I typically care about. Those aesthetics, I'm, I, I think a good belt is fine. A bad belt does more harm than a good belt does good, if that makes sense. But it's fine. I'll get used to it, and I'll get used to the new logo and the fact that we now have to write our reviews 
with Dragon Gate as one word instead of two, which sucks, but I I will make peace with it. Yeah, like, this is all for... I think I could say this openly, and if not, I'll just edit this out. I think I'm. I don't think I'll get trouble for this. This is all a copyright and licensing thing. Like the new belts, the name going to one word, the new logo. This is all like the final fallout from uh, the 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 OWE split. They didn't want to renew licenses, and they decided that let's just get new stuff and go on from there without overly deviating. This isn't like. Uh, K Dojo and 2AW. This is something that you're like, okay, it's essentially the same thing. I think that uh, the belt itself, I like the idea of like the black strap with like the gold fringe around it. The thing that I missed from it is I felt like that the, the cool thing about the Dragon Gate belt wasn't necessarily just like the key thing. That they're still a key bar. They're still using the Dream Key conceit. I like the splashes of red that was always a part of this era's title belts and that's the thing that i really don't want to go away and don't have to get used to so that, that that's my concern about the title belt but i'll get over it i think that's fair all right uh looking over the rest of the show i know that you've saw you pick and chose i know one match that you did watch as well and i interested you i'm interested to hear your appearance because i i feel like i had a little bit of an off the beaten path take this is the open the twin gate championship match where the uh, dragon gate army team of yamato and kai challenged the champions of red bb hulk and kazuma sakamoto this match was thrown out at 1945 as a no contest and gm yagi says there's going to be some punishments handed out for this i was i looked at this match more like it was just an overly long angle setting up the rest of this year than at an actual title match which was kind of disappointing uh what were your thoughts on it yeah so uh uh, two things. One, I was only able to watch the two title matches and then one undercard match that Mike for sure wanted me to watch just due to time. Uh, so Mike will carry most of the brunt of night two. Uh, but I, I saw this, and the other thing was Mike warned me kind of before I went to this match. He's like, oh, you know, that, that Twin Gate match was something. And I I knew from the way he had typed it that it wasn't <laughs> a compliment. It wasn't like, wow, that was really something. Um, so I was very curious to see... Uh, what was going to happen here. And I think something about these sets of shows in particular, because of the limited attendance and because everyone there uh, was in face mask. And obviously there's just a, a certain fear about the coronavirus that has, that spread into these crowds or not, you know, the virus did not spread, but there was a fear there that was spreading amongst the people. And so I came into the, these shows with very low expectations because I didn't expect the roster to work that, that hard I didn't I just didn't expect much from these shows. I was kind of dreading watching night one because I was reviewing it. But I was going, ah, this is the crowd's going to be dead. These guys are going to be going through the motions. This is supposed to be a big show, but I'm afraid it's going to feel like a house show. And what actually it turned out to be on both of these shows, at least from what I saw on night two and then all of night one, that everybody worked just shockingly hard and the crowd was very into it. But I feel like maybe because Mike warned me going in, I came into this match with even lower expectations and i agree with mike that it was basically a 19 minute long angle which is not good but the work leading up to the angle i was very very into i think kai has figured something out and i want to see more kai versus cosmos sakamoto in a dragon gate ring which doesn't make any sense i can't believe <laughs> that i am saying that 
But <laughs> Kai had a hot tag in this match that was captivating. I was thrilled to watch this man run around the wing, run around the ring and demolish BB Hulk and Cosmo Sakamoto. Yamato did a no handed tope at one point that was just out of this world. And then it's not even that the match ended in a DQ, but the finish was so telegraphed because the long haired referee, mini Yamato, is it Nakagawa? It was Nakagawa. Yeah. Yeah. Nakagawa is standing in the corner and I believe it's Yamato and BB Hulk that are trading moves and the, and it keeps on looking like Hulk's going to run into the referee, but he puts on the brakes and then Yamato's going to run into the referee and he puts on the brakes and all the referee had to do was take two steps to the left and he would have been fine. But instead he planted himself in this corner and it looked very awkward and unnatural and then he ended up eating a giant forearm from Yamato. And then from there, both units ran in, both R.E.D. and then the Drangate Shrewborns. Big brawl, double DQ, angle, yada, yada, yada. I really liked this match up to the finish. And then the finish, I mean, I don't even know how to rate it because it was just like, oh, this again. Like, can't we, can't we get something new? I know it's still R.E.D. and it's still this red, yellow, black attack that has been going on for five years now. But can't we get something new if we're going to do generational warfare? Can't the angles progress somehow? This was such a letdown just because I liked the work leading up to that point so much. So I was very disappointed by this because had this had a finish and a hot finish at that with Kai hitting some big moves and, you know, maybe um, uh, Frankenstein or the Almighty D2 kick out. Whoever wins, I don't care. I don't have an investment in that at this current point in the angle. But God, I would have loved to finish because this felt like it was on its way to being a notebook match. But instead, I don't even know what to do with it because the finish was just that disappointing. I just threw three stars on there and moved on in my day. It was that frustrating. But I, I think the thing that really kind of frustrated me most about this match was this was one of the big angles leading into this show was R.E.D. was trying to, one, they were trying to retire Masato Yoshino, and two, uh, B.B. Hulk was a marked man because his two former tag team partners wanted to murder him. And we didn't get any sort of resolution, luckily for the first one and unluckily for the tag team situation. And then as soon as Yaki grabbed the mic after the match and said there'll be consequences like oh are we going to like kick up another gear in this generational war because we've now been doing this for a quarter of the year and we need to have some sort of stakes added to it or is this just like okay these are going to be probably three of the six people in the cage match in may and that's when i was like oh this is an angle yeah i thought that point was brilliant in your review because i didn't i wasn't thinking about that I didn't pick up on the idea that, like, oh, this is leading to dead or alive. But I think you're right. It absolutely is. And I think we're going to see some stakes there, which is fine. I mean, it's, you know, it's a dead or alive match. I always like a little bit more randomness in that cage match. I like when there are guys that maybe don't totally feel like they belong in there. And I guess they can still work that in with either delegates or some crazy rules. But it's like, oh, I feel like we've seen a lot of Yamato versus Hulk and cage matches before uh so i'm less excited about that trajectory although i understand it but yeah i think you're you're right on the money i think this is leading to dead or alive somehow because it's already that time of the year yeah like that's my worst case scenario my best case is i hope that 
one of the, the great things about the uh, previous like all-out war between blood warriors and junction three where you had these 10 and 12 man tag matches where like the stakes were okay the person who takes the fall is kicked out of their unit or something like really heavy stakes which was so much more different than just like the dead or alive of Questus match and that's what i'm kind of hoping we might get something out of here just because like we're at a point now where there's not exactly like it, it's not exactly stale it's just like the way that these feuds work is usually you have some turns you have something going along the same lines of oh tozawa comes back hulk turns oh so dragon kid gets kicked out of uh gets kicked out of blood warriors like there's things like this i think need to provide a little bit more spice to this feud and that's that's what i'm hoping comes out of the twin gate match but other than that you know it was fine like just kind of underwhelming and i think that's the my big t- takeaway from that match i would have to agree and then from there we go into a bunch of matches that i had not seen if you want to take over on those yeah i'm just going to run through these quick i do have my full thoughts on champion gate night two on voices of wrestling so if you want a little bit more of a thorough dive into that i suggest you go look at there uh match four the pre-intermission match was torimon army versus red uh, the torimon team was yoshino dragon kid and kakatora red team was ada bigar shimizu and diamante shimizu got his first pinfall of the year with with like a flash pin that ada immediately got on the mic and started yelling at him about uh match three was a tag match it was the sworn brothers team of binke and kisuke akuda versus takashi yoshida and kaido ishida and i like this match a whole lot this was a cool one it it definitely felt like that they were going to have they have something there with the sworn brothers team if they want to make that be like a future twin gate challenge team totally okay with that but it does seem like maybe they're moving towards Ishida versus Okuda if Okuda doesn't drops the weight for it but the match that I pointed out that I wanted you to check out because I thought it was really cool was the second match on the show this was a Torimon versus Dragon Gate Trueborn match with Don Fuji and Geeky Horiguchi going up against KZ and Strong Machine J Strong Machine J got the pen with the uh they they call it the machine suplex now but it's the Devil's Windmill suplex on Geeky Horiguchi in nine minutes and 59 seconds I absolutely loved this match, and I was like, Case, you need to check this out because this is a pretty wild match, and what were your thoughts of it? Yeah, my thoughts on this match echo the Strong Machine J match from night one that we'll discuss in just a little bit, but I I don't know what happened. I don't know how it happened. It doesn't really make any sense, but Strong Machine J went from being nearly too robotic last year And I think part of that was just the gimmick he was working, but it's like sometimes a guy like Christopher Daniels will get criticized because he's too smooth in the ring, and it it almost looks so good that it doesn't look like it hurts, and it's a little robotic. But he does it in like a mechanically sound kind of perfectionist way, where Strong Machine J was working like a robot that was a little clunky, and it was like like a Daniels cosplay almost. It was just not as good as the real thing. Strong Machine J is now working uh. Like he's short circuited to keep the robot analogy going. It's like something has gone wrong in his hard drive and he is now working completely out of control. And it is such a delightful change from what we had gotten last year because we were both struggling with what to do with the strong machine army because we didn't know what the end in sight was. It obviously led to generational warfare. Uh, which worked out for the best because it just 
uh, we didn't need an explanation for where Strong Machine F and Strong Machine G went. They were just able to be phased out, and nobody has asked questions about it, and it's fine. We don't need to worry about that. But Strong Machine J has to deliver, and he had just an awful match with Ben K. I think that was at the January Corkin. And ever since then, it's like, I, I don't know what happened. I don't know if they took him in the back and said, here's the deal, man. You're you're the prized pupil now. You're the rookie that everyone is paying attention to. You need to step up to the plate and start. If you're not going to hit home runs, you need to at least get on base because he was striking out at a pretty consistent base toward consistent basis towards the end of last year into this year. This was a new strong machine, Jay. This was delightful. I loved this match and him and Don Fuji just uh, really going after each other, really beating up on each other. It was nice to see Strong Machine J work out of control and frantic and struggle. This was a different Strong Machine J than we had seen for the past year, and it was it was great to see. Yeah, like maybe it was something that as soon as he got the Tokyo Sports Award that was obviously there, he got the award because they had to get something to Dragon Gate and he made the most sense. He kind of took that as inspiration to finally make the step up, and he's really succeeded in this. And like saying he's short short circuited is the right way to say it because he over like the, the set of shows he looked like an absolute psychopath, and I loved it. Like he's just it seems like his shoulders finally healed up. Him and Don Fuji really got after it. Like you talked about Jumbo Saruta earlier. This is a match, and that these were two guys that would have made sense on those all Japan shows in the eighties. They were just hauling off against each other. And, you know, it, it was just like a really fun match and a really fun team, especially given now that Strong Machine J has his Triangle Gate title belt back. We don't know how much that's going to go on. We know Don Fuji is a part of the next challenge team, but this definitely has become like one of the things I'm most interested in and most excited about going forward as we get moving to spring. Like it just was, I, I'm very pleased as uh, he's about to close out his rookie year. I think it was. April 10th, 2019 was his debut, so by about this time next month, he will be officially in year two, and he's just been very impressive, and then you, you had KZ and, and Kiki Horiguchi together, which, you know, is always, like, if you want to have two, like, seconds in a tag match, you can't go wrong with them, and this is a match that really, like, out with the exception of, like, the title matches, this is the match worth going out of your way for on this night two show. If I really wanted to melt people's brains, I could make a Masa Fuji versus Don Fuji argument, but I'm not even <laughs> sure where I stand on that. But I will be going into the laboratory of Pure Risu archives after this show and finding out which of those guys I like more. I, 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 you call it your laboratory. I think it's like you get a whiteboard out and you try to devise whichever thing you know I'll agree to that will get me in the most trouble with people on Twitter. I think that's Mike, your big your big You are this. you are the whiteboard guy because in this next <laughs> match, which is a match I did not see, but it involves a guy that is placed firmly atop your whiteboard in Gamma. If you want to talk about these first two matches on Champion Gate Night Two real quick. Yeah, so this the the a bit that's gone completely out of control and I think now Gamma actually knows about this, which kinda of scares me a little bit, Case. I do have Gamma firmly written on my whiteboard as my 2020 wrestler of the year. And this was an uh, this was an eight man tag. It had a mixed sides on both sides. Uh, you had uh, actually only on one side, but you had Torimon versus Unaffiliated. You had Jason Lee, Dragon Daya, Problem Dragon, Oji Shiva versus 
Misaki, Mochizuki, Ryo Saito, Gamma, and Martin Kirby. This was a really fun opener. Like, this was pretty low stakes. Gamma got pretty cranky after it and had a kind of a fun closing stretch where Gamma was trying to, like, do whatever weapon attacks he could to distract, uh, distract, uh, Dia, and that didn't happen. He still hit the Reptilian or Rana. I went three and a quarter. Thought that was a really fun match. And then the pre-show was the rookies team of Kento Kabune and Takedo Kame versus the Hong Kong team of Hoho Loon and Michael Su. And Kento Kabune got his first ever non-rookie pin on Michael Su. It was a decent enough opener. But that pretty much does it for things on night two. It was I, I would say I think the crowd actually was louder on during night one than night two, considering how little people were on that show. So that takes care of that. But Case, we'll take a break here because I have a question for you, Case. What's that, Mike? Yeah, go ahead. If you were to guess on average how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, how long do you think they would wait? Oh, God, I would hope it wouldn't be more than a few days, but something tells me with the state of our country that's incorrect. Americans have to wait 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. So you're in Chicago. If you want to go see a doctor, you're playing for April. For me, it's probably even longer. I live in suburban South Carolina. I mean, I might have to wait till May. But case, if you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. And that's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that connects you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient for you to get the treatment you need on your schedule. You just have to grab your phone or computer and complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medicine to you for free two-day shipping. You can also get free unlimited follow-ups to your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you can cancel at any time. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash V-O-W for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash V-O-W for free online visit and two-day shipping. Okay, so Case, that we talked a little bit about the second night of uh, Champion Gate, but let's get into night one. I know that you did the coverage for this on Voices of Wrestling. I watched the show today, and it was an interesting show. It definitely felt like that as you're saying that the guys all brought their effort on this weekend which is kind of surprising because it was the last shows before the hiatus so what were your thoughts on champion gate night one overall really enjoyed this show i like i said was a little tentative going in just because i didn't think everybody would be working as hard as they did i didn't know how the crowd was going to be and at at least at the start of night one i don't remember if it was announced by the start of night two, but at the start of night one, everything was business as usual for Dragon Gate. Corkin was still going to happen on the fifth. All of the house shows were going to take place. So Dragon Gate was in a weird spot where New Japan had canceled all of their shows. Noah had pushed things back. Stardom wasn't running, but Dragon Gate was still there and was, it seemed like committed to running all of their shows, which I, and I don't entirely know how to describe this, but it felt strangely on brand for Dragon Gate that the rest of the country is doing one thing and DG is just like, no, we're good. I think we got this. And then I, I think what happened is they saw the depleted attendance for both nights, which I think it's, uh, you know, 
they, it's not like they were getting any walk-ups uh, for these two shows. And I would love to know how many tickets were sold versus how many people were actually in the building. But I think they saw the attendance numbers for these two shows and said, okay, there's no, there's no need to do a cork in front of 600 people. Let's cancel these shows for the betterment of our roster and for the treatment of our fans. But it was also just very poor optics. But as a whole, night one champion gate, I really had fun watching this show. Yeah, I I had no idea how to anticipate attendance for these two shows before they happen. I had plenty of people ask me, say like, hey, Mike, what do you think? Do you think more people are going to come out to Osaka for these shows since no one else is running? Or do you think it will end up that people will stay home? Obviously, it ended up that people stayed home. I think the thing that kind of encouraged them or was kind of the final nail in the coffin of this hiatus was uh, Yosuke San Maria before night two tested positive for a fever. Does not seem like they have COVID-19 or coronavirus. They said that the fever broke, but they still pulled Maria because of they didn't want any chances there. And I think that was kind of the final nail in the coffin. They only really missed that cork in. But the show, like, they put forth a whole lot of effort, like, top to down. Like, when the only match that I have below three stars is the uh, pre-show match, that is a very strong Dragon Gate show. Now, was a lot of the stuff incredibly memorable? Not really necessarily outside the main events, but everything was expertly worked, and they definitely were not mailing it in in Osaka last weekend. No, it was delightful to see, and we started off with the pre-show match. This was Martin Kirby and Takedo Kamai defeating Ho-Ho Loon and Michael— is it Michael Sue? Sue, yeah. Yes. Uh, Fun little exhibition match. I really enjoy watching Martin Kirby— I would like to see some elevation from him at some point because I think he's good enough to hang with the uh, the big timers. I think he I think he is someone that should be working uh, and finding a unit and working kind of towards intermission more so than these opening matches. Takedo Kamai, every time I watch him, I really enjoy him, but I am just stunned at how small he is. Uh, and then and you know Ho Ho Loon, it. I, is certainly someone that's taken a beating from this website in the past. I don't, he's certainly improved. I will say that. And it's uh, arguably the greatest test case for, can you become a good worker by working one Dragon Gate tour? Peter Casso certainly tested our patience with that. But Ho-Ho Loon came in as someone that I thought was actively bad. And watching him here, I was like, you know, Ho-Ho Loon's not doing too bad. He kind of has the basics down in a far greater way than he ever did before he started working with the company. And for what I've seen of Michael Sue, I like him. So this was a short, basic match, uh, but enjoyable. Yeah, I, I think the thing about Ho-Ho Loon, and I've gone and I've seen some of his Hong Kong wrestling stuff, is I think just like the whole thing with the Cruiserweight Classic and then being in WWE and XC for, I think it was like six months, just massively messed with this guy's brain, which I think is entirely a rational kind of response. Is like, oh, I've been doing stuff pretty much from a self-trained like backing, and then it completely like messes and warps it, and he's kind of like working himself back in the confidence because he was perfectly fine here. I love Takedo Kamai. I if this was like truly back in the Toriyama days, they would make him be Dragon Kid Sito <laughs> just because of his size. He has yes, that is very fair. Yeah, yeah. I, he, his size is going to be the big detriment of he's easily the smallest person on the roster. And I have to say, his his drop kicks for someone who's still under 30 matches are probably the best drop kicks I've seen out of anyone under 30 matches. And 
Kirby, I'm with you. I could see him ending up being the Gaijin and Torimon Gun going forward. It does seem like that he needs to kind of get, he deserves to be higher up on the cards. He does have a uh, match coming up on Prime Zone this month against KZ that I'm looking forward to. So there's that. But yeah, no, this was a perfectly decent uh, pre show show, pre match, pre show match. There we go. There we go. And then after that, we moved to what was the official opener. It was Don Fuji, Masato Yoshino, and Yasushi Honda defeating Punch Tamanaga, Jason Lee, and Kota Minora in a match where Punch Tamanaga in particular took a giant beating. But Mike, what did you think about this six-man? Yeah, no, this was basically Don Fuji getting really angry and beating up on uh, Punch Tamanaga for 10 minutes. Wasn't that kind of like the entire thing of this match? I It, it was a decent enough of an opener made sure you had uh, Masato Yoshino and Eric Minonora and Jason Lee. And then, you know, Don Fuji has been a lot of fun this year. He's no 2020 Wrestler of the Year Gamma, but he's definitely kind of found the spark. And Kanda, I mean, Kanda's... It's, Yuzushi Kanda is an interesting wrestler to talk about just because of how dreadful he was until he had his face turned and he was fine. This was... I give this three stars. I thought this was a perfectly competent opener. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Uh, like you said, it was Fuji getting really angry, and that's always a great combination of Fuji's angry, and there's someone there that is either willing to take a beating or has no choice but to take a beating, and I'm not sure which one Tamanaga falls into, but either way, <laughs> he took the beating. The other thing that, that stuck out to me in this match was the fact that Masato Yoshino is retiring at some point this year, at least as far as we know, I don't think anything has changed in that regard. And it's just strange. I don't entirely know what to make of it. We've been very slow to roll out any uh, Yoshino retirement coverage on the site just because we don't know when that last match is going to be. It certainly looks like it's going to be uh, against Ata, or he's going to have a big Ata match at some point where he's likely going to lose. We think he's retiring at least after his homecoming show, which I believe is in September, but it just stuck out to me here thinking, okay, he's working the opening match on night one and he's in an important match, but a non-title match on night two. And this is the last champion gate shows he'll work. I'm not saying he should be in title matches, but it, it feels much more like the Liger retirement path than uh, I than say any other you know grandiose retirement tour that we've seen. This is it's a little low key so far, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, and I think the Liger comp is the right thing to put on this. It does seem like after he lost the title to Pac in 2018 that they started a slow cycle down. Maybe they knew that that was his last big run, and now it was time for him to kind of move on down but yeah there's very little pomp and circ and circumstances and pageantry for this uh eventual retirement that if i was going to put a date on it i would not be surprised if it's the corkin after a gay destiny since gay destiny is also in osaka if his neck holds up but it's just kind of it's weird but it's also something that like i i'm glad that he's getting a chance to wrestle everyone and not having to have like a sudden retirement out of nowhere there seem to be way too many of those these days but it does kind of feel like that this is kind of like he's a little aimless and i think this is kind of what's going to be like until the big retirement road starts up which is kind of kind of disappointing but also understandable you know 
Hashtag have a catch with Yoshino 2020. That is what we are going for here. I want Mike to grab a <laughs> ball and a glove and be able to toss around with Masato Yoshino. If you can make that happen, please let us know at Open VoiceGate on Twitter. Yes, and if you want to sponsor it, you could slide into our DMs, and we have very reasonable rates to sponsor. Have a catch, Yoshino. Why is that ta- not taking off and Gamma Wrestler of the Year 2020 taking off? That's just the cruel ironies of fate. It's ridiculous. You know, we've worked really hard at this. We've been covering Dragon Gate now together for five years almost. We finally, at the very least, it's we're not co-opted by any means. We certainly don't have connections within the company but we have conversations with people that can have conversations with people in the company you would think we would be able to just get a simple game of catch set up but oh man i don't know if it's gonna happen i'm rooting for you mike i really want this to happen yeah and you know the 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 great thing about have a catch yoshino is that we would have a catch i would ask him questions about his career great english western content people could know when the most important people in Dragon System history, one of the best tag team wrestlers of all time, and one of my personal top 10 wrestlers of all time. I feel like it'd be a natural kind of, you know, A plus B equals C, but it seems like we're not hitting that equal sign yet. So please, slide into our DMs. Let's make this happen. Let's make me have a catch with Yoshida. Let's do that. And then speaking of hashtags that have taken off or not taken off. Uh, Gama is in this next match. Mike Spears' <laughs> new favorite wrestler. Uh, Yuki Yoshioka defeated Gama in what was just an out-of-nowhere great match. I love when stuff like this happens because when you see a singles match on the bottom of a DG card, it's typically a squash or it's two young guys who are going to work hard but not have a great match. And then there's something like Yoshioka versus Gama where you're just going, huh? It's kind of weird. I wonder I wonder what that's going to be like. And it turns out it's going to be great. I gave this three and three quarters, just a hair shy of four stars. Mike, what did you think about this? Oh, whatever has happened over the Christmas holiday or the New Year celebration of 2020 that had uh, Gamma, who I believe is either 48 or 49, decide to have probably his best in-year entering year since 2006 or even going back to Osaka Pro whatever has happened I'd like to thank that just because this was a gritty match like this is something that I know we've talked about a lot case that Dragon Gate has a reputation for just being a sprint heavy promotion and people don't get beyond that like paradigm in their mind but it feels like over the last few years this has become as stiff and as tightly worked as anyone's favorite uh strong style king's road styles match and that's kind of what we got here with yushi okioka kind of sending himself off with a big win against gamma it just was a good time gamma was firmly in control for a lot of this match just like punching and kicking and just being the crap out of him and then whenever yoshioka like got on offense the crowd went insane yuki yoshioka for like the last few years has always been someone that when i watch these Kobe Sambo Hall shows or KBS Kyoto shows, he gets such a large crowd reaction. The crowd loves him. He's a handsome young man. And whenever he was able to land a big move, it was such a big like momentum shifter. And then he was able to get a flash pin with his reversal Samson, which is one of the more complicated pinning combinations they have in Dragon Gate. But he was able to get this big win here on Gamma, and especially some, some news that we'll get into later on this show 
was like a big tiding of what the future may be for Yuki Oshioka. What's going on, guys? This is Rich from the Flagship Podcast here on the Voice of Wrestling Podcast Network. And I just want to let you know about a brand new sponsor we have for the network. It's Eufy. And let me tell you a little bit about their newest product, the Eufy Video Smart E330. This isn't your everyday smart lock. This is a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell offering triple the security and triple the convenience. Instead of loading up your door with a bunch of different devices, you install one, and it takes care of everything in a complete package. It's not just about the home security, though. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is also for convenience. No more worrying about losing keys. You can let each member of your family get a password. You can monitor their movement in and out of the house. You can keep an eye on your packages. You can check in on your house while you're away. There is so much you can do with this product. Best of all, it is easy to install and set up. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver. Leave that drill in the toolbox. The Eufy has keyless entry, a 0.3 second fingerprint recognition, a rechargeable battery with a four month lifespan, two way audio from the lock, enhanced night vision, 24 seven customer support. And you'll love this. None of those pesky monthly fees. Eufy sent me a smart lock 330 and I've loved it so far. It allows me peace of mind when I'm at work or when I'm away on one of my patented vacations. Plus it helps me keep track of deliveries to the house, saves me a trip back to the car. If I just need to run in for something and I forgot my keys and the two way audio system works well for those unwanted guests at my front door. No, I do not need new siding or windows or a roof. Thank you, though. You can simply tell them you aren't interested from the comfort of your couch. Now, are you ready to ditch the others and join the Eufy revolution? Of course you are. Get started today by searching Eufy Video Lock on your search engine of choice. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can finally, once and for all, gain complete control of your door. Once again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock ufiofficial.com slash video lock and we thank them for sponsoring the voice wrestling podcast network say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill yeah, Yoshioka is going to be a star. I really feel confident in that. And you're right on the money about this idea that Drangate has, in a weird way, the house style has almost started to shift. Now, I, there's a pace and a franticness to Drangate that is still there and will still always be there. But, and I think it goes back to these Mochizuki Dojo kids, which. Whether or not Mochizuki was actually training them, we don't really know, but at least he was the figurehead of this movement that was Yoshioka and Minora and Okuda and Skywalker, even Hayao Watanabe to an extent, where these kids were really snug and they hit really hard. And then you throw in guys like Jason Lee and Kaito Ishida, and you look at what the next five to seven years of this company could look like, and it's these guys that are going to be elevated and main evented as the Gamas and the Fujis and the Dragon Kids are 
phased out or phased, you know, down card and the Yamatos and the Hulks and I don't know, maybe Kai at this point are going to become the legends, the grumpy guys who's taking over the company. It's going to be the Skywalkers and the Yoshiokas and they, they just work so snug. And this was a storytelling match with Gama where the, the Osaka pro trainee, the veteran Gama worked really hard and really wanted to show up the kid and Gama's 46 years old this year working as Mike said, arguably harder and better than he ever has. And he just couldn't outlast the youngster, an important match in the career of Yoshioka and a thrilling match on the bottom of this card. Yeah. And I've thrown this tag on Yoshioka a lot, but now it feels very on the nose He's going to be this generation Susumi Yokosuka. He's going to be the guy that, you know, whenever they need you need to have a great match, they're going to throw this unassuming guy who used to wear yellow and blue uh, bell, bell-bottom pants on this. And he's going to be like that kind of star. And I really think that he was someone that I did not know what his trajectory would be, what his ceiling was. And he is now another person alongside Shun Skywalker, alongside Kisuke Okuda, that are going to be in that big chase of who's going to be the person that to be like the generational rival of Benkei. And I'm really encouraged by like, I'm, I'm excited to see what kind of Yuki Yoshioka we're going to have in 2025. Because I feel like that would be an incredibly fascinating wrestler. I completely agree. And on the topic of young wrestlers, there was another one in this next match that's presence was felt. This was Takashi Yoshida and Diamante defeating Mochizuki and Kento Kabun, Kabune as well as Naruki Doi and Susumu Yokozuka. A lot of different elements in this match. Yoshida and Diamante is a dangerous team, both in terms of size and kayfabe, but also they kind of just wrestle like they could hurt people. <laughs> it seems very literally dangerous. Uh, Doi and Susumu, we talked about them earlier. They wrestled each other the next night, but they teamed in this match. And then there's Mochizuki and Kento Kabune, who, wrestled, who debuted December 22nd of last year and is now in a profiled match on a big show. So, Mike, what do you think about the match overall? But in particular, what did you think about the rookies' involvement here? Well, it's something that, like, I don't know, like, what really happened over the last four years or, like, the last three years after pretty— because there pretty much was a standstill after Elinamen debuted and then— Suddenly now we've been getting these incredible wrestlers that come out of the gates ready to perform on this level. I mean, he, as you said, he's less than three months in his career. He's had 20 to 30 matches, and he was thrust into a, a big pre-intermission match with the Dreamgate champion, the All Japan Junior champion, and two guys who you, you got to know where you're going, make sure that you're in a good place because it can get kind of messy if that's not the case. And, uh, Kabune looked incredibly... He didn't look out of place. He did not look like someone that was this inexperienced. He has probably the most dangerous chops. Probably worse than Ada and T-Hawks from back in that time. And I, I know that you, you are the first person to the, oh, he's a future Dreamgate champion. And I just think it's going to be interesting to see because he did not feel out of place in this match. Like, arguably, the RED team felt more out of place in this match than the uh, literal 20-year-old. I mean, that just makes me sick. He's 20 years old, and he's already this talented of a wrestler with this little experience. But yeah, no, this was a 
really kind of a funny match in a lot of ways like doi trying to steal wins steal the pinfall here and trying to get out i thought was kind of funny and then it's it, it was interesting like like the one thing that i did notice was you could tell like doi and susumu never really have teamed to get up together before uh yoshida and diamante like diamante has been around since the last summer but there seems still seems to be some awkwardness but like Masaki Mochizuki, I guess being the rookie whisperer, was able to be pretty dead on with Kobuna, and that made this match incredibly interesting. Yeah, oh god, could you imagine what a straight two versus two between Mochizuki and Kabune and Doi and Susumu would look like? I mean, that that's like a four-star floor match, and then the RED team, they held their own here, but it, they they felt more out of place, you're right, than than the rookie did. But yeah, I I don't think it's an accident that he was the one placed in this match, and as we go along in the careers of Taketo Kamai and Kabune, look, one worked the opener, one worked this match, and they're at the same exact point in their career. That trajectory is only going to continue uh, from here on out. But this was this was a fun match. I just I can't take my eyes off of the rookie. As of now, I think he is the clear front runner for Wrestling Observer Newsletter Rookie of the Year, just because mainly we haven't seen a lot of guys. But he is also a true rookie and is very, very good. So I enjoyed this. I enjoyed the next match as well. This was Yamato Kai, Keisuke Okuda, and KZ defeating BB Hulk, Big R, Shimizu, Eita, and Kazuma Sakamoto. This eight-man tag team match. Mike, what did you think of it? Oh, this match fucking ruled, man. <laughs> right? Right? Like... I was not expecting it to, but it did. Yeah, no, this one was like, had a solid clip early like this is the interesting thing about these two shows was maybe it was because of COVID-19 fears there wasn't as much prolonged crowd brawling and I think that that actually helped out the show a lot and there was like this really cool segment in this match where Kisuke Okuda decided to use Big R Shimizu as a human jungle gym just like it, it, he it, Shimizu was about to do the fallaway slam, and instead Okuda like slid around. He got a rear naked co- choke, and then like a version of the Cobra twist on him. That was really cool, and it just was a really like a solid match. Yamato sold pretty much like the first ten minutes of the match was all Yamato selling to a f- great final stretch. I went three and three quarters, but this is a match that if someone even went up to four and a quarter on this match, I wouldn't argue with them. This was just like. These are the kind of matches that I want to have in a generational war, stuff like this. And everyone brought it. I mean, Kai really has come along. I mean, Kazuma Sakamoto is the first one out of the freelancers to really get Dragon Gate, but now Kai definitely does. And, I mean, you have the whole thing with, like, Ada and Shimizu that I feel like is just such an obvious red herring that I, we haven't really paid much attention to it because I get a feeling that you think that's a red herring as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair to say. As for the match, this is when I really started to uh, perk up at this show because I was like, well, you know, that Yoshioka match was really good and I liked the three-way tag. That opener was fun. Uh, Oh, my God, Yamato's working so hard on a non-pay-per-view. You know, it's not an Odo Ward or Kobe World Hall, and he's working really hard. Oh, my God, we're really getting a show here. This was a match that made me appreciate Yamato for who he is just because when he is on, and we unfortunately so rarely see Yamato on and working this hard, but when he does, man, it is something special. I don't have a ton of thoughts on this match. Other than that, it was just one of those classic 
like, oh yeah, this is this is a three and three quarters Dragon Gate match. If it happens anywhere else with this level of energy and pacing and perfection, it's the talk of the town. And that's not there's no bitterness rooted in that. It's just it's a praise to how good Dragon Gate really is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. And it's interesting, like, this was the, the motto in this match was the motto I wanted in the Twin Gate match the next night. <laughs> so, like, that's It what would was... have been great, yes. Yeah, but, like, it just was... And it's also something that's, like, a testament to the promotion where you have one side that has two trueborns. You have one guy that kind of just showed up because he's someone's best friend and nephew, Kai, who was just happy to be there. And then on the other side, you had three of kind of the... Uh, I don't want to say disappointing, but the three of the uh, Trueborns that trajectory kind of has gone awry in Kazuma Sakamoto, and they put forth like a match that if I'm going to make a comp tape of like this year in Dragon Gate, I'm tossing this match on there just because it's not like going to make a top 10 list by the end of the year and probably won't be one of my top 10 Dragon Gate matches. But just like the energy in this match and like what they were doing and where they were doing it and when they were doing it, I felt like was pretty special. Yeah, it feels like a good introduction to all of these people if you've maybe never seen them before. Uh, a good introduction there, so a match that followed, that felt like the pinnacle of their ability, open the Brave Gate matches with the semi-main event of Night 1 Champion Gate in Osaka. Kaito Ishida defending the Open the Brave Gate Championship against Genki Horiguchi, and he won with the ankle lock. Mike, I have a lot of thoughts on this match. Most of them are up in full over at VoicesOfWrestling.com and the Champion Gate Night 1 review, but I want to know what you think about this match. I think that this was the full realization of uh, Kaito Ishida. Like, we saw how he really became a star last year in maximum and then he had the uh then he was the green demon surprise but this one was his first a just like full complete match of someone that's been around the promotion now for that he's entering his sixth year and this was just a great storytelling match talking about how ashita decided okay i'm just going to be a laser precision point on ginky's leg he's an old man i'm gonna take out his legs and he was incredibly charismatic. I think this is like him just being like an asshole is his like perfect role. And I don't know, like he's not someone that I would put future Dreamgate champ tag on, but he's definitely someone that if something were to happen in this whole unit war and Ada got a big face turn, he could pick up the mantle of like the prime mic worker and like the jour leader of RED. And I feel like he'd be fine, but this match was excellent. Ginky, as always, was solid. Great finishing stretch. My rating, it was... I didn't read your review until after I watched this match, and we ended up both at four and a quarter and very similar thoughts on this match. I wanted to go higher. I just, for whatever reason, couldn't. But I think you're you're right in the Ashita thing. Let me, let me ask you this. Do you think it's more likely that Eita or Kaito Ashita become Dreamgate champion in their career, and which of those guys would you rather see hold the Dreamgate belt? I think Eita is more likely, but more interested in what a Kaido Ishida title match would be. Yeah, I completely agree. And the one thing that you just pointed out that Ishida firmly has over Eita, and Eita's improved, and his character work is getting stronger by the day, 
but, but as far as we know, from everything we've heard, we don't speak the language, but from everything that is being passed on to us uh, in, in notes and from what I read through Japanese Twitter, Eita's still not a good promo. Now, he's better. He's not getting eaten alive by Shima in front of televised audiences anymore, but he's still not an elite-tier promo in the same way that a Yamato or a BB Hulk or a Mochizuki, the main eventers of the promotion, or a Yoshino especially, he's not on that level, nor will he ever be. Kaito Ishida at least from the vibe I get listening to him, like it's a, it's the it's the Naruki Doi test. I don't speak a word of Japanese, but come Doi darts every year, I watch the entire segment because even though I don't speak the language, Naruki Doi is so captivating. Kaito Ishida is one of those guys that when his promos come on, even if I know there's not an angle coming up and I know I could just skip that portion, I want to hear what Ishida is saying because I want to hear how the crowd reacts to it. And I don't feel that way about Ata. Now, I know the way the company feels about Ata, and I know they want him to be that guy eventually, but I think Kaito Ishida would be a far more exciting main eventer in the future. But for now, we have his Brave Gate run. I hope it goes all year. I hope he finds someone, whether it's uh, Kaisuke Yakuda. Maybe when Shun Skywalker comes back, I don't know who, but I want him to just start wrestling everybody and have a feud that goes on an entire year where no one can get the belt off of Ashita because this was a masterclass in storytelling. From the bell, Ashita targeted the leg and the ankle of Genki Horiguchi, and every single time it seemed like Horiguchi finally had a counter and was going to go on a run of offense and defeat the champion, Ashida proved that he was just a little bit younger, just a little bit stronger, and more importantly, just a little bit smarter than Horiguchi. And then once the powder was thrown in the face of Horiguchi, he was tripped up and grasped into an ankle lock, and Horiguchi submits. Ashida retains the title. Like we both said, four and a quarter stars. This was a... It, almost one of those matches that is more brilliant than it is good. Like, this was a great match. I think that's undeniable, but the work in it was just so textbook foundationally strong, and it was great to see. Yeah, like, that's... The the thing about Kaido Ishida, and he was kind of this way even as a face, but I feel like it's even more present as a heel. He is a thinking person's wrestler. You can tell, like oh, he's going to work over someone's leg, that's going to play into the finish. That's going to be something he goes back to, and he's going to make the leg work look convincing enough that even the person can be a little bit haphazard of selling, but you're still going to be like, okay, the point got across. And he's going to be a person that, like, this was a 16-minute match. I'm not afraid of what Kaido Ishida could be like when you go to, like, 20, 25, 30 minutes, because... He definitely is someone who is so well thought out in what he does in the match. And if he's ever like feels like that the crowd's getting pulled out of the match, he'll do something incredibly prickish and bring them back in, which I think is the exact contrast contrast what we've seen from Ada as we saw through the end of 2018 with his incredibly long and frustrating feud with Dragon Kid where matches would be going 20 and 30 minutes and they would have to use weapon work and like a lot of heel shenanigans in order to keep it interesting. I don't have that worry of Kaido Ishida. I think Kaido Ishida, over the last 24 months, has finally kind of 
gotten it, and I'm just interested to see because he's still another guy in his mid twenties, which is wild because he's been around for the last. He's entering sixth year of wrestling, so I, I this is definitely I I like this match more than the Triangle Gate match, which is something considering how much I love one of the guys in the Triangle Gate match. So I thought this was an excellent. I completely agree. Event. Let's get into the final match on night one of the Champion Gate show. This will wrap up our Champion Gate coverage. This was Dragon Daya, Ben K, and Strong Machine J defeating the Tori Yuman Generation, Dragon Kid, Kanichiro Arai, and Ryo Saito. Daya, Ben K, Strong Machine J, they become Triangle Gate champions. It is the first title that Dragon Daya has held, and the second time for both Ben K and Strong Machine J that they have held this in particular title. It should also be noted that Kanichiro Arai came in into this match with a separated shoulder which he hurt in the match that they won the triangle gate titles in which would have been at the february corkin i believe yes i it's weird we talked about the february corkin and we glossed over that because the main event was so good but they held the titles for less than a month they lose them here in their first defense a very, it had moments where it really felt epic in the sense that Kenichiro Rai was fighting with one shoulder and Ben K was, it felt like literally trying to rip that shoulder off of his body. Dragon Daya has an incredible finishing stretch and we finally feel like there's been some sort of conclusion to this now five month run of big victory after big victory. Mike, your thoughts on the Open the Triangle Gate Championship match. Yeah, like, I was, like, Kenichiro Arai is one of my sentimental favorite wrestlers in Torimon history. Like, I, like, just, like, all throughout, he's never been, like, the guy. He did have a period where he was British Commonwealth champion back in the Torimon days, but he really was just, like, a tag worker. And I think, like, he's one of the people that, when I've had wrestlers, like, ask me, like, oh, what's some stuff that I should watch to kind of get, like, just a different vibe? I always hand them a bunch of... Kanichiro Rai and Taku Awasa tag matches because that was a very special and unique tag team match. But yeah, he's someone who's not necessarily in the greatest healths. As we saw, he separated his shoulder doing a Firebird splash, which was right in the final stretch of them winning the title. And that became the overwhelming storyline coming into this match because he was taped up like a zombie. And you had Ben K using his uh, freestyle wrestling background to dismantle him. And then you have shorts. You have the short-circuiting uh, psychopath, uh, Strong Machine J, just, just being an absolute monster. But yeah, the story really of this match, I felt like, was there was a little bit of Daya versus Kid in this match, which is, of course, a big thing in Dragon Gate history is whenever you have the dragons and like the history of Daya being Dragon Kid's protege. Like We got to see some back and forth between the two of them, and I thought that was enough of a taste to keep us going on this until they do bigger things with these two guys, but... Yeah, this five-month elevation of Daya from being someone that was absent of cards most of the first half of 2019 to be and completely silencing his doubters, well, probably the biggest one being me, and be, and putting together like a really strong year and having like the trajectory of him. Like he is still a very slight person, and he does feel like that this is going to be the Triangle Gate kind of reign that's going to be focused around him. It'll be interesting to see how this reign goes and what they do with him afterwards. But this match was incredibly interesting. And, like, you even had Dragon Daya trying to work over Eriken. And you had, like, some really cool 
stuff from Dragon Kid, he used the 619 as, like, a transition move, like, during rope running, and it was something that was like, why do people have to do, like, the, oh, everyone's head's in the second rope, trying time for the 619. It looked so much better when they were just bouncing off ropes and someone was tripped up for a second, and he immediately reversed something into a 619. But, yeah, no, this was a great match. I think I was actually a little higher on this match than you were. I went four and a quarter on it. Yeah, I went four flat. I am telling you right now, when we get into the latter half of the year, assuming Dragon Gate starts doing big multi-man elimination generational matches, whether they be straight two units or if we do the triple threat tags, there are going to be moments with Dragon Kid and Dragon Daya where I think we're going to see Dragon Daya directly pin Dragon Kid and upset him in big buildings and big spots. This relationship is going to fascinate me as this angle progresses because they have a real chance to do some big things with Dragon Daya. And in a weird way, I don't think he's retiring anytime soon. He seems to be shockingly healthy for his age. He hasn't, he's always dinged up, but he hasn't had a catastrophic injury in a long time. But it, it feels like Come this time next year, Dragon Daya could be in that upper mid-card spot that Dragon Kid has been firmly in since, I don't know, 2002. It just feels like we're moving in that direction. And this reign, you're right, I think it's going to be all about Dragon Daya and that reptilian Rana that put away Saito in this match. And I think we'll continue to put away guys as we progress into the future. I love this match. I had fun with the show. That is all of the Champion Gate and Osaka coverage that I have. Mike, is there anything else you want to add before we get to our last topic? I, you know, I feel like we spent longer on this than I expected. But yeah, no, this was a real interesting way for them to go in their hiatus. They'll be back on the 14th. It does seem like that they're going to be back for good unless there's more of an outbreak. I think the next time they're back on the network for TV is their... Uh, annual show in Wakayama on the 20th. So, yeah, that's all I've got for that. Very cool. Mike, would you like to introduce our final topic of the show? All right. So something that has come up and came out of Champion Gate, like the one piece of news, really, was that Yuki Yoshioka is going on excursion case. He will—we don't know where. I have an idea where or when he's going, but it does seem to be imminently. And this is kind of something that kind of lets us talk about the history of the Dragon System and Excursions, specifically Dragon Gate and Excursions, because up until Shingo Takagi, there were no excursions in Dragon Gate. You basically did your excursion when you were training in Mexico and you came over as a fully-fledged wrestler. But since then, and with the DG Next and to the DG Kobe Dojo, there's been countless excursions. There's been a break. They kind of came back this year with Shun Skywalker now being in Mexico. So we kind of just wanted to talk about Yuki Yoshioka going on excursion in the history of the uh, Dragon System and excursion. So I think that's about as good of an intro as any. So case up, Yuki Yoshioka going on excursion is a very interesting uh, proposition. It's a, I find it a lot more interesting than Shun Skywalker because Shun to make him very obvious how and why he's going on an excursion. What are you expecting for Yuki Yoshioka on this excursion? I'm expecting him to land an MLW. I think he'd be a much better fit in the States than he would be in Mexico. Uh, To me, it seems like, okay, he was going to wrestle 
uh, Dragon Daya at the March 5th Corkin show, which was canceled. I think he was going to lose that match, and then he was going to go off on excursion. And now we unfortunately don't have that match, which I guarantee would have been an excellent match given the trajectory that those two have been on. So now he's likely coming to America. We still don't really have any detailed relationship. I, at least, I know nothing of it. I've heard some names that are likely to be coming over. Uh, they came, They were the names you would expect if you're trying to get any sort of Dragon Gate presence in this country. None of the names came across as shocking to me. But Yuki Yoshioka, even spending the next nine months in MLW and working American Indies, I am certainly intrigued at the idea. I mean, I would certainly love a Yuki Yoshioka versus low-key match. I don't know <laughs> if that's going to happen, but Yuki Yoshioka versus Jordan Oliver or Septimo Dragon, Gringo Loco, Puma King. I mean, those are intriguing matches, even if I don't know if they'd necessarily be all that good. But I'm I'm very curious to see what comes of this, because if you look at the history of Dragon Gate excursions, there are some real high points, and it's not necessarily that there are low points, but there are some bizarre markers on the timeline of excursion history. Yeah, just uh, get my guesses. Uh, he's going to MLW. I don't know this for certain, but him in Mexico seeing what's going on with Shun does not make sense for him. He should be in MLW, and hopefully because of how MLW is, and he'll get to work with people that work elsewhere... I could see him making a good place for him. I could see him on the GCW shows. I could see him maybe on AAW. I'm not positive about that, but I could see that happening. I think that this excursion is going to be a big test for him, and I think it's going to be a different test than what's going on for Shun. Shun obviously went on excursion kind of a as a, hey, go do this for a while, and then we'll bring you back, and you'll get a big pop. Like, that was Shun's. Like, Shun was already a complete wrestler. Yuki Yoshioka, for as much as we laud and give him the credit he deserves he's not the most charismatic person and i think that that's going to be like one of the big hopes is seeing can you get some weight on him make him maybe into a a bigger star like i think he's he's just out of brave gate territory but you might want to see if he can put on some muscle and then get some charisma so i think that it's going to be interesting and it'll be a kind of a test because when we talk about dragon gate excursions there's kind of kind of three big excursions and then the rest of them either were like fake fake excursions where they worked like two weeks and that was it or ones that just nothing happened so i think the first one and the most famous one to talk about is shingo takagi's excursion in ring of honor it was from 2006 to 2007 this was right after he was a member of uh, blood generation he came back and formed new hazard coming out of this and was like his first big exposure there he he won the roh tag team championships with naruki doi during that time and just was like a big moment as like dragon gate already made a mark in ring of honor but this is like furthering that relationship before it went down south yeah i love the shingo and ring of honor stuff i think at this point i've seen every one of his matches from his time in the promotion and most of them are very very good and he came over once in 2005 with shima at the dragon gate invasion show in buffalo and then uh, split in 2006, came over to the States full-time for about a year and was working Ring of Honor, Full Impact Pro, and then he had a handful of matches in PWG, one in 2006, and then he worked the Battle of Los Angeles in 2007. Uh, 
if you have any interest in tracking down some of Shingo in Ring of Honor, I have three ratchet matches to recommend to you. Uh, Shima teamed with Shingo uh, to wrestle Christopher Daniels and Matt Seidel on December 22nd, 2006. And then the next night, final battle 2006, it was Shingo, Shima, and Matt Seidel against Austin Aries, Delirious, and Roderick Strong. That's a fantastic six-man tag match from the Manhattan Center. And then I think the most applauded match of this excursion because if we're going to talk about simply excursions I'm not including his 2008 Wrestlemania weekend appearance because at that point he was a promoted act uh, but his final match of his excursion it was Takeshi Morishima versus Shingo Takagi for the ROH world title so a Noah wrestler wrestling a Dragon Gate wrestler for a Ring of Honor title this was uh, good times great memories April 28 2007 Still one of my favorite Shingo matches and one of my favorite Morishima matches, but in terms of a successful excursion, Shima came or Shingo rather came in a very talented, albeit undefined, unfinished product and left, uh, be- becoming the Shingo Takagi that we now know and love. Yeah, no, this was definitely the one that really kind of put the icing on the cake of him being like Shima's junior and blood generation and the tail end of crazy max into him becoming a full fledged force. Like the more Shima match, like I have vivid memories of it. And it definitely was something where like he became the one that like, then that was his first exposure to Western audiences and got him so much more confidence that pretty much the Shingo that you would see like in his little singlet with the Mohawk and mullet beforehand. And then afterhands are two completely different people. And I feel like that, this is like the big mark of demarcation between early Shingo and then what later would become like the early parts of modern Shingo Takagi. Yeah, a very fun run. Uh, I don't know if you have anything more to add on Shingo, but I know next on the timeline is just, yeah, okay, so a fascinating uh, case here. And I think you can go into the the background of how this happened a little bit more, but Cyber Kong wrestled a handful of matches in full impact pro in 2006. And Mike, how did he end up there? So the story of Takashi Yoshida is he originally was tried out for the new Japan, Japan dojo. He was too short. He was a, he, I don't know if he was a champion, but he was known for arm wrestling of all things. But then he moved to California was part of the Inoki dojo there during the previous peak of the Inoki dojo. So we're talking about people like, Brian Danielson being over there, Shinsuke Nakamura was there, the Havana Pitbulls, like it was a very formulative time, and he worked in California for a while, and then he moved out to Florida, and he met Shingo Takagi when he was independently working FIP shows, and they decided to bring him back to Japan, and he has been off and on a full member of Dragon Gate ever since then. Like, I don't, like, I remember seeing these Cyber Kong matches, but I couldn't tell you anything about his time in FIP, but I know his back story, and I think... That's more interesting than his time in Full Impact Pro. Well, you might think that, but I am completely fascinated by Cyber Kong stuff and FIP. I have seen most of it at this point because, uh, luckily for us, the Full Impact Pro archives are available, if not in full, then relatively in full of the first incarnation of the company. So everything from like 2003 through 2008, Cyber Kong was there in 2006. He wrestled four matches, uh, won a singles match against Roderick Strong. Um, He wrestled a tag team match that was Davey Richards and Roderick Strong versus Cyber Kong and Brian Danielson. 
That show is on the High Spots Network. That is FIP Fallout 2006, October 13, 2006. And he also wrestled a match that I think is near and dear to the hearts of everybody at VoicesOfWrestling.com. The second year spectacular night two. It was Cyber Kong versus the Canadian Cougar. And do you know, Mike, who the Canadian Cougar is? Is that the guy who was uh, now Cougar in Osaka Pro? No, sir. It is the wheelman Tony Kazina. <laughs> September, okay, September okay. 9th, 2006. Uh, a night we all surely remember and we will never forget. The FIP Second Year Spectacular. I I don't remember watching this one, but if you want to see CyberCog versus Tony Kozina, a.k.a. the Canadian Cougar, it is there for the taking. Wow. That was not a match I expected. I did not think we'd ever be talking about Tony Kazina. I'm glad we game, finally but... did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So FIP kind of became the place for people for a little bit. Like Kong was found there, but then Hulk and Yamato both did like kind of short tours. Yamato won the next one tournament and they sent him there. But like it was when we say excursion, these guys spent like two months in the States and most of their matches didn't make cage match. Yeah, Yamato in particular wrestled the second ROH WrestleMania weekend, the one in Detroit. He had two matches there. He defeated Pele Premio in one match and then lost to Claudio Castagnoli on the next night. That Claudio match might still be up on YouTube. I know it was up there for the longest time, I think, as maybe one of the first uploads on the Ring of Honor YouTube channel. But that's there. It's an un uneventful squash match, basically. And then the two of them, Yamaha. And BB Hulk, they wrestled Roderick Strong and Jay Briscoe on the third anniversary Full Impact Pro Show. That was September 28, 2007. That show, as well, should be on the High Spots Wrestling Network if you'd like to watch that. Yeah, and it should really be said, said completely different Yamato than nowadays. This is blue tights, big ears, like second generation of Keku Jujo, uh, like being uh, Kanda's like, rookie Yamato during this time. Really weird. Yeah, it's so strange to so strange to think that Yamato is a direct descendant of Kondo, really. It's bizarre. Well, I mean, like, that's like the story of like the first real generation of Trueborns, because Shingo was with Shima, uh Hulk was with Magnum Tokyo, and he was with Kanda, and you know who was with uh Akira Tozawa? Who's that? Kanichiro Rai. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh I, and then, like, Hulk, his time in FIP was a little bit before that, but it was just, like, it wasn't a real excursion in the same way that Yamato had one, even an abbreviated one, I would say. No, Hulk more just wrestled dates for them, but I don't know if I would call it an excursion. He was just young and happened to be in a different country. Right, right. And then the one person that next definitely had an excursion was KZ. He won the 2000 and seven or 2008 i don't remember the exact date next one tournament which was like their rookies tournament and wished to go to mexico so he went to mexico and kind of just did training in mexico i remember once talking to cubs fan trying to find out how much kz actually wrestled and he was kind of flabbergasted and said like i don't know as much i do know kz wrestled a chikaro king of trios weekend and then came back and joined uh, uh world one famously uh it, i remember the story being and seeing this was uh 
Doi and Yoshino were in the ring at Cork and on their cell phone, calling a very obviously asleep KZ because of time difference and asking him to come back and join Wrestle or World One. I thought that was a, a that was that's the biggest memory I have of this excursion. It is an all-time great angle. Uh, the IVP Videos Speed Muscle compilation has this on there, and it is one of those that even if you don't speak the language, you kind of start to understand what's going on, and it is just excellent stuff. But at least on Cage Match, KZ has no record of working in Mexico, so how much he actually wrestled, we do not know, but we know he was there. Yeah, he was there. I think he was training with Skyda which would make sense, and he did wrestle Chikara King of Trios on a team with Cheech and Cloudy. Oh, boy, that reeks of 2008. Yep, yep. Uh, th- then the uh, second big excursion was Akira Tozawa in the United States. He was based both around San Antonio and Huntington Beach, California, but this was the big PWG excursion from 2010 to 2011. He did wrestle in Dragon Gate USA. Famously, this was the, uh, the time where... She- where Shima said, hey, yeah, uh, we're going to go to the airport. And then when he was at the airport, he said, oh, yeah, you're going to go and stay in America for six months. Thanks, Shima. <laughs> and then Tozawa kind of became a American star, and arguably either him or Shingo were, like, the most beloved recent excursions for people. I would say even more so than New Japan. Yeah, the Tozawa thing, and I watched all of this in hindsight because it was just a year or two before I started watching PWG, but... If you look at basically September 5th, 2010, when Chris Hero kicks his head off in the Battle of Los Angeles and Tozawa fights back to the best of his abilities, and then the six months or so that come afterwards, ending with him and Kevin Steen wrestling El Generico and Ricochet, and what I think is one of the most underrated American tag team matches of all time. I know that has been a a discussion this week of the greatest tag team matches of all time. And I don't know if I looked on my spreadsheet, I feel like Tozawa Steen versus Generico and Ricochet is every bit as good as the, uh, the all elite match that happened last week, but that's a conversation for another time. But Akira Tozawa became on a low level, um, an independent, foreign star but a star nonetheless and it drastically changed his career path because without this excursion i think there's zero percent chance he's in wwe at this time uh this is this is as good as it gets that excursion the pwg stuff the Drangate usa stuff the chikara show he worked uh that was king of trios 2010 i believe and then he worked uh, a little bit. Oh, he worked King of Trios 2011, too, because he has a singles match with Eddie Kingston. But this is as good as it gets. If you've never seen the Tozawa excursion stuff, I wish we were still living in the era of compilation DVDs for this reason, because uh, all of this footage is now in separate places and way harder to track down. But it's worth it if you haven't seen it. Of uh, You know, spend a weekend while Japan shows are still halted for the time being. I don't know, buy a High Spots Wrestling Network subscription, go watch the fun FIP shows, and then go watch Akira Tozawa slowly transform into one of the best wrestlers in the world. And, and like, it can't be undersold, like, how much Tozawa meant to PWG at that time. And how much, like, this was a guy that pretty much the company wrote off for the majority of his career, and they sent him on an excursion 
from and i get the impression that his excursion was kind of like a last stitch what can we get out of this guy you know like he was someone that was always on the bottom part of the cards never won a title was somewhat of a nuisance they're like hey go do this but he went to pwg he went to the and this was like right before the real pwg boom in western consciousness he became like the god of the Reseda, california for about 15 months and it was something special and unique and his tag team with kevin steen was incredible the trio of matches he had against chris hero i remember seeing a music video compilation of it and it was really incredible stuff and that eddie kingston match in jakara is like low-key like one of my favorite matches of that decade just was like eddie kingston like when he before like he revitalized his career this year and Kirtozawa just being the crap out of each other for about 15 minutes. It just was a good time match. And to maybe it's because I lived through this one, and this was really during my active Dragon Gate fandom, but this is my favorite excursion that's ever happened in the Dragon system. Yeah, when you look at the pantheon of PWG, and I, I almost speak in PWG in hindsight now just because it's just a shame that the company feels so dead, even if it's technically alive, but... You know, you've had guys throughout time there, whether it's Drake Younger or it's Adam Cole or it's Speedball Mike Bailey, Candice LeRae and Joey Ryan or Keith Lee and Donovan Dijak. There are guys that come through and, yes, they might be stars in other companies, but for whatever reason, they connect to the PWG crowd more so. And they are looked at as stars on the independent scene, but they are looked at as gods in the context of PWG and Akira Tozawa was one of those guys. And it's, it's not what you'd expect. I mean, Tozawa, the Tozawa that we know and love, or at least appreciate, even though he's off uh, in WWE, which is just such a travesty because we lost prime years because of this. But the wrestler you see in 2010, the guy getting his ass beat by Chris Hero, it's, it's a part of his evolution, but the guy that came in on that excursion in his first few matches is an entirely different wrestler than the Akira Tozawa that we know and love today. And it's because of this excursion that he was able to win the Brave Gate title, that he held the Twin Gate belts with Shingo, that he came back to Japan. It became the focal point of Blood Warriors versus Junction 3 and became a, a superstar in Dragon Gate because of it. It's all because of this excursion. Yeah. Yeah, and I think for those reasons, it was the most successful one. So, the last big excursion that's happened before Shun and uh, Yuki Oshioka were the Millennials excursion in 2012 and 2013. This was Ada first, then T-Hawk, and then finally UT. They were based out of Arena Nakupon, which is kind of like the ancestral home ground of Toriumon. And they did a couple of DG USA shows, but a lot of the stuff... I remember for a while, the former Powerbomb slash independent wrestling tv used to have a couple iwrg matches with the two with ada and t-hawk but this was like an interesting excursion because they definitely wanted them to kind of develop a style and it was more picked up on by ada and ut and they came back and were supposed to be something and of course we've talked a lot about the millennials on open the voice gate but this excursion like there were a couple appearances they had in dg usa but not a lot of tape for this one yeah, I've only seen the DGUSA stuff because the former Powerbomb TV, I believe they actually had the DTU matches on the website, but they were pulled due to a, I, I guess, a legal dispute between you know who, 
who actually had the rights to share that footage. They were pulled before I ever got to see them, but they had, that was one of the initial drawing points for the site, which this is a discussion that is irrelevant, but one of the initial draws for Powerbomb TV was that they had DTU footage that was readily available. And then I, you know, plunked down my $10 a month and, and the DTU footage was pulled. So I have never seen their Mexico stuff, but I have seen their DGUSA stuff, which includes uh, T-Hawk and Ata versus the Super Smash Brothers, which are now the Dark Order from DGUSA, uh, opened the Ultimate Gate 2013. That was April 6th, 2013, one of the greatest independent wrestling shows of all time. And then that, that summer and evolved T-Hawk and Ata versus the Young Bucks on July 27th, 2013. If you can track down those matches, I highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah, it just was like a excursion where we're never going to see like the formula, like the big parts of it. Like Ada became like a pseudo member of Paris Del Mall during it, but like they did have some appearances at a time in Dragon Gate history where they were losing their United States uh, relationships. And there's only one other person who really did international dates in what you could somewhat call an excursion, and that's Yosuke Santa Maria. I feel like we've talked about it, but case. Do you know who the two people that Yosuke San Maria faced in 2014 were? Mike, I do because here's the thing. I And part of it is because of you and talking to you and appreciating the work that you do to preserve some sort of Dragon Gate history. But I think because I've talked to you, but also just because I have an interest in the subject as a whole, I've become very concerned with archiving uh, media and history to some extent – I stream music daily and I'm terrified that will that it will all go away because I don't own any of it. I feel the same way about a lot of wrestling and I'm luckily lucky enough, you know, to have a hard drive of stuff that I feel like is relatively hard to find that I keep just in case somebody needs it. In that list of things I like to archive, I also have Every Gabe Sapolsky email from about the summer of 2013 through last year when I just stopped paying attention to evolve altogether so not only do i know who yosuke santa maria faced but i know who the original dragon gate usa talents on these shows were supposed to be this was the second to last set of gg usa shows it was supposed to be ryo saito and shima coming over saito got hurt and then a few days before the event Shima was pulled from the show. Shima was supposed to wrestle Johnny Gargano for the Open the Freedom Gate Championship, which was not only a, a air match dream, uh, an air quotes dream match, but also something that they had been building to for a very long time. And we never got that singles match. And then Shima was going to do something on night two because he would have lost. And Johnny Gargano went on to wrestle Roderick Strong, which is actually a match I remember was a very good match. But anyways, both guys pulled out due to injury. So Gabe fired up the Dragon Gate USA New Talent Initiative, which featured wrestlers such as Blake Edward Balakis and Jay Freddy. I don't know if you remember Blake Edward Balakis, but I think he's one of the worst guys that Gabe has ever booked. He brought so many shows to a screeching halt in the brief time he was booked. But to answer your question, yes, Yosuke Santamaria came out as a surprise appearance on Dranga USA's Revolt 2014 and wrestled Caleb Conley. And then the next night, she wrestled Ethan Page. That's right. Ethan Page is played by Julian. Oh, of course. Yeah, you know, uh, shout out to the Impact 
wrestling crew. They're doing some great stuff over there. I'm glad they're finally breaking the barrier between being, you know, legitimate performers that are respectable and, you know, just characters that are played on television so they can maintain a social media appearance. Congratulations, guys. Things are going well. <laughs> Gee, yeah. And this this whole like whole like period, like you talking about those emails, it was so clear at this time that DGUSA was ending and Gabe just was like what do I what what can I do? What can I do? I fully expect that like he sent an email over to Shima, uh, President Kido, President Okamura, and said like, "Hey, um, so so y'all are injured, but I need someone on these shows." And they looked up and down like, "Okay, uh, we'll send Maria over there. How about that?" And those are two of the probably more awkward matches in DGUSA and Evolve history, and that's taking over a whole lot of time and a lot of really awkward matches. The February 21st, 2014 WWN Live Alert reads something like this. We regretfully announce that Shima will not be on this weekend's events. Shima has had back issues lately. We believed he would be able to compete at the weekend at a high level. However, we determined yesterday that while Shima can wrestle, he would not be able to meet expectations for a match of the magnitude as the one he was scheduled for on Saturday. In addition, we became fearful that around 30 hours of travel resulting in a very tough schedule would only set back Shima's recovery. We decided it was in the best interest of Shima's future and in presenting the best possible shows to you that Shima should stay in Japan. We realize this creates an awkward situation with no main Dragon Gate stars on these DGUSA events. Unfortunately, it's just how things transpired for the weekend and there is nothing you can do about injuries. We'll make this up to you by presenting the best possible matches and using this as opening the door for new stars to impress with the new talent initiative. So it's a fascinating story of Shiba can wrestle but he doesn't want to. Uh, his back hurts and he doesn't want to get on a flight so he's not coming. It was just a very awkward email that I'm very glad I had saved because that gave me a good laugh this morning. And, and for more in context, this was like right after Gabe claimed that they weren't able to get visas and like the visas were submitted late on Dragon Gate's part, which I haven't heard for certain. I don't think that was a late visa submission thing. I think that was Dragon Gate not paying for the visas because they didn't see it being worth it anymore. Like, the, the dying days of DGUSA, that is something that I know that Case and I have a certain fondness for just because of how bizarre and how this great relationship just crumbled. And there's probably no better example of it than that email that Case just read. It's weird. I, I look back on these shows with very fond memories because this was still my relatively early days into independent wrestling. This is still, like, I pay-per-views were the heart of this business and there were really good matches on these shows. Chris Hero wrestled A.R. Fox, and Johnny Gargano wrestled Roderick Strong on the main event of that second half of shows, and those were both, I remember those, those were great matches, and then on the first night, this was this was a tough show. This was not as good, uh, but Johnny Gargano wrestled Trent Beretta in the main event, and that was a really good match, too. Like, these were not bad shows. They were just not Drangate USA shows, which made them abysmal in the eyes of some people, and rightfully so. Yeah, no, you, you look at the people on this roster on these shows, like, definitely a lot of people, like, would do greater and greater things. But just at the time, there's only been one rating on DGUSA Revolt by the cage match and mates, and it was a three. Yeah, th that Revolt show, I remember in particular, I, I would love to know... 
how many people have seen that show because that was not broadcast as an iPay-Per-View because they were running the Queensboro Elks Lodge, which I actually kind of liked as a venue. It was really small in a really tight fit, but for Gabe's crowds, it kind of worked. But that was not broadcast as an iPay-Per-View. But the next night, which was Way of the Ronin, was in the Brooklyn Lyceum, which was that that building that Gabe swore for years. Like, no, I like I like the gritty of it like it's like a fight club but dragging it usa and we were like no gabe it's lit horribly the venue looks like shit i heard from people inside that they fucking hate this place um but there were good matches <laughs> like that next that johnny gargano roderick strong match i think is actually in like the second tier of great matches in 2014 it's a really good match with a really hot crowd because this was kind of the start of roddy no not necessarily distanced himself from Ring of Honor, but this is when he started working more for Gabe and doing some more independent shots and was working without a contract and by proxy was working very hard. And this is like a fun time for the promotion. It just so happened it was the death days of Dragon Gate USA because there were no Dragon Gate talents available. And that seems like a good... A, a interesting note for us to end on, I think, Case. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Yuki Yoshioka in the States. Hopefully he gets to wrestle people a little better than Jordan Oliver, but we'll, we will see. I did see something come across. I like across. Jordan Oliver. I, hold on. I will defend Jordan I, Oliver. I like him I get Jordan Oliver. I, I get Jordan Oliver. He basically is like a new age Jack Evans. If Jack Evans had a lot of SoundCloud rap. I you know? see. I look at Jordan Oliver and I, and luck. Luckily, AAW, which I, when I'm available, I attend monthly and I do uh, either live reports in the building or I do have to watch their February show and review that, which I am looking forward to because the show looks great, but it is a, it is a time commitment. I think there's 12 matches on that show, but Jordan Oliver is, I, I think Jack Evans is the, the main comp he's been getting. He's more of a slim J. He is this generation's special K, like his, his group, the young. Young, dumb, and broke as fuck crew. They're like special K, but evolved. And Jordan Oliver's rough around the edges. I don't love everything he does, but in, in terms of an act that feels modern and contemporary and active in a world where wrestling is always five or ten years behind, I look at Jordan Oliver and he is right on the money with that act. It's just a matter of whether or not he can improve in the ring. I think that's a fair assessment for him. I think that's fair. Uh, I did see come across uh, Jimmy from DTU is will be back on this weekend shows. That's not, fantastic. I knew, I knew that that was in the. Uh, I knew that there was a hope for that happening in the future. I knew that they were talking about him coming back for a while, but I didn't know so soon. None of those shows are, will be on the network, but now they have Jimmy Martin Kirby, Michael Sue, Ho Ho Loon, Diamante, probably one of their deepest uh, gaijin uh, rosters they've had in a long time coming up yeah should be a good time and unless there's anything else to hit i think we are about done here on this episode of open the voice gate anything else you wanted to touch on before we go no i will just plug my stuff real quick as always you can follow me on twitter at underscore in your case uh i do 
tweeting about Dragon Gate from there. And that is kind of it. Um, and then you can follow and subscribe to my non-wrestling podcast, the Art School Albums podcast. Uh, every week we attempt to curate the Ultimate Art School playlist by breaking down an album track by track. We have discussed such albums as uh, The Flaming Lips, The Soft Bulletin, Bright Eyes, I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning, My Chemical Romance is The Black Parade. We have a bunch of fun ones coming up, including Green Day's Insomniac. Uh, it's me and uh, my very funny improvising friends around the Chicago area, and we, we talk once a week about an album that means something to us. It's a good listen if you care about music, so don't forget about that. Uh, and then continue to support VoicesOfWrestling.com. We've got some great stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Yeah, and the only thing I'm going to plug is the Open the Voice Gate Twitter account, at Open Voice Gate. That's, usually, that's Case and I. Usually we have information. We will live tweet some stuff from there, and then... Yeah, y'all know where to find me. I'm at Fujihaya. I yeah, I do a lot of the other plugging on Everything Elite, so I'm good without that. But I think that's going to do it for us. So for a case, I'm Mike, and we'll catch you next time on Open the Voice Gate. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.